0: Today, on the One Up Beat, we'll be listening to music by da, 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 da. me, Grant Kirko.
1: Getting the best symphonic game music from every generation, this is The One Upbeat on Cinematic Sound Radio.
2: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The One Upbeat, and thanks to composer Grant Kirko for being the first composer to contribute to an episode. Hopefully it makes for an even better listening experience and we can do more of this sort of thing in the future. After doing the Yoko Shimomura episode last year, I thought it would be cool to do a deep dive into one composer's work every year. When considering who to feature, Grant Kirkhope seemed like an obvious choice. It became even easier when I featured precisely none of his music from ukulele during the Best of the Year show, and Mad Monster Mansion was left out of the suite from Brassylvania from the Best Arrangements of 2019 show. I figured I owed it to the guy to just show how special his music really is. Grant Kirkhope was born on July 10, 1962, in Edinburgh, Scotland. His initial musical influences were from his father, who was a big fan of Frank Sinatra and Glenn Miller. He started teaching himself guitar at age 11, opposite his classically trained trumpet playing. Between the early big band influences, classical trumpet studies, and his time playing with the rock bands Little Angels and Tribe, Kirkup was exposed to a healthy variety of musical styles, which made the transition to composing even easier.
0: So, like at school, I was, you know, first of all, I played recorder when I was four. I remember they bringing around recorders and saying, "Anyone wants to play a recorder?" And it was like fifteen shillings, which is like you know ancient currency, I'm so ancient. And I like—I put my hand up, thinking I want to do that. I don't know why. And then they brought out a cornet when I was six, and in a shopping bag, and said, who wants to play this?" And I got my hand up first, and so um, I got to play that. And I did the proper sort of classical trumpet playing thing, you know. Um, in the, in the in the UK, you do these things called Associated Board exams. It's grades one to eight. So I did all those, you know, over the years kind of thing. Started playing, you know, guitars. When I was about 12, sort of self-taught, like playing in, you know, poppy bands when I was a kid, but got more rocky and metal as I went on. Um, so I think, a bit, you know, all the time I was doing the classical trumpet playing, playing in the local orchestras. Uh, I played in the North Yorkshire County Symphony Orchestra, which I thought was like the LSO to me. It was like this big, you know, the whole county orchestra, which was like full of amazing people. I couldn't believe it. But, I mean, you know, I, I never once thought about being a composer ever. Like, that was just not ever in my head. Like, I wrote songs for the metal band I was in, but when I was at the Rondon College of Music doing a four-year music degree as a classical trumpet player, um, I mean, I failed the harmony exam three years out of four. I was, you have to pass it once before you, can, before you leave, before you can graduate. And I failed it the first three years, you know, miserably. Um, I only managed to scrape past in the in the last year by the skin of my teeth, you know, so... You know composing was definitely not on my on my radar because I was so bad at understanding harmony, but I would say that um the i mean i I guess I didn't really want to be a trumpet player i I just did it because it was four years of not getting a job probably um but one big thing from being at the the run on the cozy music was that the the college orchestra rehearsed every Tuesday and Thursday morning from like ten till one or something like that. And I don't think I missed that ever in four years being there. That was amazing to me. Like watching them, you know, play some of the fantastic works like you know, Hindemith and Stravinsky, Firebird and, uh, you know, just tons of stuff. I can't think what they are now. But, but, but I mean, you know, it's, it's great to see people do that and listen to them, listen to them rehearse because they're all getting rehearsed and, you know, all that stuff that you, you maybe you may use later in life you don't realize that you're learning at the time. So I feel like that was a really brilliant thing for me to do.
2: Kirk Hope joined Rareware on October 15, 1995, and was first tasked with converting David Wise's music from Donkey Kong Country 2 to the Game Boy, starting with the title screen music. It was a programming challenge that he had to figure out how to convert the Super Nintendo music to play through the Game Boy sound system with its severe limitations.
0: I had a friend, uh, Robin Beanland, who was a keyboard player in one of the local bands that I played for. And he uh, one day announced that he'd um, up and got, you know, got a job. I was like, what? Like, no one that I knew got jobs. Everyone that I knew was mostly, you know, playing on in bands or on tour or signing on to unemployment insurance, which I did for about 11 years. Um, he said, you know, Grant, he will have to get uh, have to look at Rare. I couldn't believe it. And so he'd been there about a year and a half. He said to me, you know, Grant, you've been on unemployment benefit, you know, on and off for 11 years. Don't you think it's time you got a job? And I was like, well, I suppose so, but you know, what can I do? So, well, why don't you try to do what I'm doing? Why don't you try to music for computer games? Um, I was like, well, I've no idea if I can do it or not. So he, said, so he recommended that I get a copy of Cubase, uh, an Atari ST with a meg of RAM, uh, and I got a synth modular uh, Proteus FX, and I set about writing music, you know, that I thought was appropriate for video games, and I played a lot of games at the time. Um, and uh, I sent five cassette tapes off to Rare, it, over the course of 1994 it must have been, uh, never got a reply, and then out of the blue I got a letter saying, "Please come for an interview." And can you bring with you uh, write three pieces for the interview? It's like a Batman-style orchestral piece, and like a Mario platformer, and like a guitar-based sort of fighting game piece. So I wrote those in, in like quickly in a week and went down for the interview. And Dave Wise uh, interviewed me along with Simon Farmer, who was the general manager at Rare. And that was a Friday, and on Monday got a letter saying I got the job. Couldn't believe it. I was like, "Wow, I, ne- I never had a job before. It's like an alien concept, you know." So uh, that was it. Packed up your stuff and uh, went down, moved down to Twycross. Well, that's where the company was. I went to live in Colville, uh, and then Ashby de la Zouche uh, in the Midlands and started work at Rare in, on October 15th, 1995. And, uh, and that was it. Proper job.
2: <laughs> Kirkhope's first composition job was on 1997's GoldenEye 007, the beloved video game adaptation of the 1995 film. He worked with Rare composer Graham Norgate on the score, and Robin Bindlund did the elevator music. Kirchhoff's first solo score, and what he's probably most well-known for to this day, is his music to Banjo-Kazooie. The series wasn't always about a bear and bird duo saving the bear's sister from an evil witch. It started out as Project Dream on the Super Nintendo, and later the Nintendo 64. The soundtrack to Dream is available to listen to online, and is easy to find on YouTube and elsewhere. When you listen, if you know the Banjo-Kazooie music, you'll hear a lot of familiar themes. Banjo-Kazooie was released on June 29, 1998 in the U.S. and a month later in European territories. It would be followed by two sequels, one in 2000 on the Nintendo 64 and one in 2008 on the Xbox 360. This is probably the game that really cemented that Grant Kirkhope style that everyone recognizes today. The first track he wrote was the tune for Click Lock Woods, but it wasn't until writing Mumbo's Mountain that he really touched on what makes the banjo sound what it is.
0: So, you know, it is a bit weird that banjos lasted the test of time, like 20-odd years, which is really peculiar. Like, when you write it as a composer, I don't think you ever think that it's going to last that long, especially with a game. You think maybe, you know, six weeks, six months, and people are going to forget about it. So it's kind of weird that it's kind of gone on so long. Um, But obviously hugely gratifying and very humbling. I mean, you know, I must have done something right, you know. <laughs> um, it was weird, because when, you know, when Band- when Dream got converted to Banjo, and Dream was like a, you know, a Mario RPG-type game, it was like, right, Grant, you have to write some kind of jolly platform tunes now. Uh, get on with it. That's what the kind of the heads of the game sort of told me. Um, and let's see if you can do it. Because I was still sort of a bit unproved, I suppose. At I'd, I'd done Golden Eye, but, you know, it was a different thing. Can you write platform music, you know? Um But as the game kind of got more going, I kind of hit upon that tritone thing, that tritone umpire thing. I think originally I was trying to find a way to use dark harmonies, like sort of the kind of Danny Elfman, you know, kind of dark harmony thing from Mad Monster Mansion, but not scare the kids. And how would I do that, you know, without, you know, in a a platform game? So I was listening to Beetlejuice and I just thought, hmm, this is like a dark gay, dark harmony, but it's all on par. It's kind of, you know, I thought, hmm, so that's, the trick is that you can write as dark as you want, but as long as the rhythm's jolly, no one's going to get that scared. Or at least that's what, I, that's what I thought. So that kind of, you know, a little light bulb went on going, oh, this could be possible. And then and then, the, and I was thinking about Banjo-Kazooie and thinking about the characters are opposites, therefore, you know, a tritone is the furthest point away from, you know, in a, in a scale like a C to a sharp, that's the furthest point away. So I thought, hmm, so every, the, the two characters are opposites, you know, Banjo's a bit a bit of a dumb, you know, bear Kazooie's a bit of a sarca- wisecracks, you know intelligent, wisecracking, sarcastic bird. So that would be it. So I kind of started doing the umpire with the tritones and that, that was basically, this, that was a Banjo-Kazooie sound. You know, and I guess Mumbo's Mountain was that one where I kind of, I'd written a tune for that already. And uh, Chris Stamper, one of the the bosses, said, "You know, we, we don't think it. The rest of the music sounds because I kind of written other stuff, you know, before that or after that." And he said, "When well, I kind of got the tritone thing at that point, he said, we think you need to go back and revisit Mumbo's Mountain and Treasure Trove Cove because it don't sound like the rest of the game.'" So, you know, that all that tritone things used to, you know, really, really work for them. It really, and also, I've, also, I think thinking about that game. We were trying to beat Mario 64, right, which was fantastic. We all we all, bought, we all had it at Rare, played it, thought it was amazing. And, you know, I realized that there was no point in me trying to copy um, that Nintendo sort of poppy, jazzy style because they're really good at it and I, I'm really bad at it. So it would be awful. So I had to find something else that would perhaps be me, you know. I mean, you know, not thinking sort of anything super grand, like it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last forever, et cetera. I was just thinking I need to find something that's different so they don't say I'm copying, you know. And you know, I think often you don't really think about it that carefully. You don't really think; you just do your best at the time, right? Like I don't, I didn't know it was gonna, people were still gonna like it in two thousand twenty. You know, um, it's just you just you just do your best, like I guess like anybody does. Um, but you know, it it was one of those things where, and I I thought I did feel like to prove myself. I thought, well, this is my own game. I do all the sound effects, all the music, and I better not mess it up, you know. So, you know that was a super rewarding thing to do, and I felt like I, I felt like it was you know I, I, I could give the game my own sort of signature sound you know that the kind of um, what I felt in this in the sound effects to the whole thing where everything matched together because I did it all, and it's something it's nice to do that you know but games get to such a size these days you just can't possibly do that.
2: There's not much to say about the score to Banjo Kazooie that hasn't already been said a million times. Every track in the original game's score is unforgettable. It's been 22 years since the game came out, and I still get some of the themes stuck in my head every once in a while. We're going to play some tracks from 2008's Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, the Xbox 360 game. We're using this game for the show because it includes themes from all three games in the series, and gives us a bit of an opportunity to talk about the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. All the music you'll hear on today's show was recorded with them. The City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra was founded in 1947, right after World War II, as the in-house orchestra for the Baravov Film Studios. They later privatized and went through some name changes until they got to their current name in 1992. They're one of the most prolific orchestras in the world.
0: So, I got involved with them. So, like, at Rare, um, Stephen Burke uh, started at Rare in the 2000s sometime. I'm not sure what the year was and um, I was doing, I think, Grab by the Ghoulies, probably, something like that. So it must have been bought by Microsoft, so it must have been, yeah, 2000, I don't know. Well, I can't remember. Anyway, so he started, and he had an experience with orchestras before, so he suggested, he was doing Cameo, that, you know, it would be po- possible to do, to record it with a live orchestra. And, and I was like, right at the end of Grab by the Ghoulies. So I didn't get the chance to do it. Um, so he said, yeah, I know, he knew Nick Rain, I think, and I think he knew James Fitzpatrick, who's the... Uh, so Nick Rain is the kind of conductor guy, orchestrator sorry, orchestrator that we've used. He also conducts. And uh, James Fitzpatrick is the um the kind of contractor for the orchestra. He'd done it for years and years and years. And James and Nick were, you know, good, you know, brilliant friends. So Steve went off to do that, and we went across for a day to kind of see it. And it was like, you know, it's incredible when you get when you get real people playing your music. Um, not only is that spectacular and like, you know, you're you're mean tears most of the time, when human beings play music. They do things just naturally without, without being asked to do it. Like just little crescendos, little diminuendos. You know, little things that you don't, that you may not be in the music, but it's just a natural phrasing of, of a human being. It just makes it so much better than try to do it with with MIDI. Even even though the, the, you know you can get great results with MIDI, I think having real people do it, there's nothing like it. It just is so much better. So. um, you know, it was just a really, really fantastic experience. And I remember when they first kicked off playing the first intro to the first piece on Viva Piñata, I just couldn't believe it. It was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Um, so that was such a positive experience doing that. It was inc- it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, and then we went back again for Viva Piñata 2. And I went back again for Bunch of Balls. Nuts and Bolts. Um, you know, kind of thing. And I went back again for Kingdom of Amla Reckoning, uh, after that as well, and also for some Mary Rabbits uh, as well, um, you know. Because I say, you know, I think it's such a good relationship with Nick and 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 uh, James that I have, because uh, we're just friends, you know, uh, and it's, it just makes it all the more pleasurable to go there and do it. And you know, you know, you kind of end up writing with that orchestra in mind, you know, um, which is super cool. And also, that the, they're sort of playing. You know, they play day in, day out, that orchestra, you know, with score after score after score. So they just get better and better and better. And, uh, you, you know, they get used to using click tracks and all that stuff that perhaps orchestras who don't do it very much aren't, aren't used to. It's just fallen off a log for them now, you know. So, and you get you know, tons of people being out there um, from Hollywood to uh, to record. There's, as I said before, there's nothing like having real people play your music and just, yeah, it's, it's just, you just run out of, you will not superlatives, you really do. Um, it was fantastic and has been fantastic.
2: This is music from Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, which includes themes from Banjo-Kazooie and banjo Tui, music composed by Grant Kirkhope and performed by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> You are listening to The One Upbeat
1: on Cinematic Sound Radio.
2: Grant Kirkhope would go on to write the scores for three more games at Rare until one of the biggest moments in gaming history happened. Microsoft bought Rare outright for $375 million. Along with it went some of Nintendo 64's biggest game franchises like Banjo-Kazooie, Perfect Dark, and the then-in-development cameo elements of power. The first fully original game by Rare for Xbox not counting Cameo or Perfect Dark or The Conqueror port, because there was definitely no other rare games that were released on Xbox in 2003, was a game called Viva Piñata. Viva Piñata is a life simulator game where you tend to a garden on Piñata Island that's been neglected. This beautiful and relaxing game deserves a similar score, and Kirkhope delivers a masterpiece. You'll once again hear some unused themes that were from way back during the Project Dream days, but the gorgeous nature of this score can't be understated just by pointing out the fact that there are old themes in here. Viva Piñata ended up becoming a popular media franchise with sequels and a kid's TV show. It's kind of been gone for a little while at this point, but at the time when Rare was kind of synonymous with Xbox, it was very popular and kind of a mainstream thing. But I sort of feel like people have unfortunately forgot about it in recent years. How does Mr. Kirkhope feel about Viva Piñata all these years later?
0: Viva Piñata, originally Steve Burke was doing the game. Um and it, and we've done all of it and I was doing probably finishing off Grab by the Ghoulies, I think it must have been about that time and then um it was said oh, well look you know Steve he's, he was also doing cameo I think at the same time and so it said can, Grant can you when you finish Grab by the Ghoulies, can you take over doing the sound effects I said alright I'll do that and then I think Steve got mega busy on cameo and so they said look Grant can you do Steve Piva Piñata? so Steve had written some music for Viva, some of the some of the romance dancers are maybe 20 or so of his. Um, so I was brought along into to, to do it. So when I, when I looked at the game, I just couldn't help thinking about that kind of classic English country garden. So for me, it was, you know, I love Vaughan Williams and I love Elgar. And even though, you know, I'm nowhere near as good as those guys, Viva Piñata was my sort of attempt at that kind of English pastoral sound, if that, that's what you want to call it. I, you know I think that I really like writing that kind of music yeah you know, i guess if i did if I wasn't working as a you know as a, employed as a as a media composer, I'd probably write that kind of music just for fun. you know I love that kind of just you know very melodic, just tuneful, calming music, so it was you know a real fantastic chance for me to get to write something like that you know and just be able to do it and not and no one moaned about it you know um. So that was just a great thing to do, um, and you know, and then to get the Bafta nomination, my God, I, I couldn't believe it. Like you know, f- you you know that happens to other people, not me. Um, so that was fantastic. And, you know, the fact that that got voted into the Classic FM Hall of Fame a couple of times, you know, and all that, it was you know, it's amazing. I often talk about Viva Pinata as being one of my favourite things to do, and it really, really was. And then to go back and do Viva Pinata too, I got to write more music for that. You know, and I think first time round, you're not quite sure how far to push it. But I think in the, I didn't do as much music for the second game because it's like an add-on. Um, but I certainly tried, you know, harder to write better music for that, for the second game. Um, and I was talking about, there's a tune called Bedtime Story, which, because um, I kind of knew at the time I was going to be leaving Rare. I hadn't, I, don't, I hadn't told them yet, but, you know, I, I was, I didn't think I ever, ever want to leave Rare. I liked it, to like being there so much, but it just wasn't working out for me at the time. Um, and so that piece really is what, I guess, pouring my heart into that piece was like, that was that piece to me. And I do remember, James, that was the last piece I played in that session, and James said to me, you know, I should go out and thank the orchestra so I went out onto the podium and like, you know, next to the side. And I sort of went, you know, I just want to say thank you. And went, ooh, <laughs> sort of burst into tears. Uh, I couldn't really speak. And they're all like, oh God, you know, you're a crazy man. Um, but that, yeah, I guess that piece, it, it, it still, you know, can make me cry if I think about it when I listen to it. Uh, equally tranquil as from the first game so uh, you know that's one of those moments that I think I'll never forget that entire recording of of those two games was was really special to me
2: Viva Piñata went on to be nominated for a BAFTA award for the best original score in 2007 this is music from Viva Piñata released at the end of 2006 for the Xbox 360 with music composed by Grant Kirkhope again performed by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra (music) Oh, <music> my
1: The best video game music coming out of your speakers. This is the One Up Beat on Cinematic Sound Radio.
2: Grant Kirkhope's last day at Rare was July 18, 2008, after finishing the recording sessions for Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. This was just before that game and the second Viva Piñata game would release. A few days later, it was announced that he was joining big, huge games. Kirkhope's one score while he was there was for the game Kingdoms of Amilar Reckoning.
0: It got to a point for me. I wanted to leave Rare. Um, I just wasn't as happy when Microsoft took it over. It's not. It's not that that was a bad thing. It just wasn't right for me. Uh, it suited lots of other people, and I did like it at the start. Um, and it wasn't just that. I really me and my wife uh, before we had kids um, used to always vacation in America. That was our favorite place to go, like you know L.A. or you know San Francisco, Vegas, you know New York. I always thought, wouldn't it be great to kind of live in America and work there, you know, I mean, never thinking we'd ever get around to it. And I kind of half-heartedly applied for a couple of jobs over the years and never really thinking about it. And I applied for big, huge games. Um, and um, me and my wife also said, you know, at the point they say, yes, we'll worry about it at that point. Not, I never thought about it really. And then they said, yes, so it was like, oh, we really can go and do this and go live in Baltimore. And we had kids at the end, it was like, you know, God, pull the kids out of school, et cetera. So probably not not the best of times <laughs> to do it. But we thought, well, you know, why not? So, um, you know, and Big Games was different. You know, it was rare at a, at a custom complex in the middle of like lavish, you know, not lavish, uh, lush green fields and grounds and lots of, uh, you know, in the middle of the countryside. And Big Games was in a tele- an, an office block in, in Timonium in Baltimore. Very different on a, in one floor in a building, you know. So it was it's kind of different to the way I, I was used to kind of, you know, swanning about. Um, but what attracted me to Big Huge Games was that when I did the interview for them, like you know weeks before, I got interviewed by you know you, anybody at the company can interview you. You get two people every half an hour for as long as it takes, and anybody can veto you. So if if everybody agrees to hire you and one person doesn't, you you don't get hired. So that was a you know I kind of felt like that was a super impressive way to to go about things. And the studio was, was mega solid, like the it was full of really great talent, and I was I was shocked at to how good they all were, really, um, you know. So that was a big plus to me. And I thought the game looked great at the time. It was called Crucible back then, um, before it changed to Reckoning. Um, and I, you know, to get to do a big sprawling RPG was fantastic to me. You know, in that kind of that kind of law, that kind of you know, um, sword and sorcery. I love that stuff.
2: There's a whole saga of controversy around this game, mostly around the business side of things. But I thought it was great. It played really well. It was interesting. It felt a little different from most games like it. It didn't just have that copy and paste feel that a lot of, you know, large games have. And of course it had a fantastic score. This was more of a fantasy game in the traditional sense. So Kirk Hope really wanted to go and show off some of that John Williams inspiration he has. Amelar's score is big, epic, mysterious, action-packed, and it's just really cool. You definitely hear that grand copiness in there every once in a while, that magical twinkle that he has, but it's a much more serious and mature score than some of the others that he's known for.
0: That made a difference to me, that that game, because I'd never written anything that grand before. Um, I feel like I really spent a lot of time thinking, how am I going to really push the boat out for this? So I literally listened to that, that John Williams, you know, my, he's my, because my hero, uh that the first three Harry Potter soundtracks that he did, I listened to those over and over and over again in the car, to and from work every day for four years, and that's not—that's no exaggeration. That's what I listened to for a long time. And I was trying to learn how to do that thing that he does so well. And I'm not saying that I did it, but I did my best. <laughs> um, you know, it really, I was trying to get that thing where, you know, I think John Williams writes, you know, massively elaborate music. It's very, you know, ornamental. Um, it's... You know, he has that kind of big theme moment where you really you really, you really, get hit between the eyes with it, and then he goes to this kind of, I call it his treading water music, because it, it, it sounds insulting, it's not, where he just kind of go into this kind of manic, exciting music that's all over the place, like an idea every ten, every two, three seconds, which is incredible. And then he's right back on the money again when it's melody time, you know, for the big theme, you know. And I was trying to learn how to do that, to try to go, I need the big themes, but I need to learn to write all that woodwind ornamentation, all that kind of string ornamentation that he does so fantastically well. So, you know, the first piece I really did that on was Baylor. Um That was the first boss piece that I sat down to write. And I thought, well, let's just see if I can, what I can do. So it was that thing where I wouldn't let a bar go by without feeling that I'd done something with it. There was something going on somewhere that was, that was you know, more ornamentation to make it more exciting. That I just tried to make every single bar as exciting as I could. When I finished that piece, I thought, well, you know what, that isn't that bad. <laughs> and I was like thinking, maybe, you know, maybe you can do this, you know, kind of thing. So that was a real, a real moment for me to kind of realize that maybe I could do it. And also at the time I was thinking, you know, I'd like to have a crack at movies and thinking that, you know, you always think in the back of your mind, maybe I'm not good enough to do that. And at that point I thought, you know, if I did get the a, a chance of, to do a score of this nature, I wouldn't be scared to do it. It may not be great, but I'm sure I could do it, you know. Um, so... Yeah, that mattered a lot, and I think it was, it was definitely that Harry Potter thing. There, I mean, I, you know, I love Harry Potter for anyway, and I love John Williams, and I, I guess that there are some of my favourite scores of his, because I just feel they're so, they just glisten with magic. I can't think of another word for it, and I was just trying to get some of that glistening into my music, uh, and um, I don't know if, I'm, if I managed it or not. You should let me know. I don't know, <laughs> but I try my best. Big Huge Games,
2: along with Kingdom of Mavilar's co-developer, 38 Studios, had a full staff layoff later in 2012, which left Kirkhope as a freelance composer. There's definitely a niche following of people who love this game and its score, though, and whenever somebody brings it up on Twitter or elsewhere, Grant always reminds people of how much he loved working on the game, and it's it's a really wonderful score, and it's something a little different if you're usually used to Grant Kirkhope's banjo or, you know, other games that sound like that. This is something a little more exciting. It's a little more, you know, mature for for lack of better terms, with everything so playful before that. This is music from Kingdoms of MLR Reckoning, with music composed by Grant Kirkhope, performed by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra.
1: music ever recorded for video games is here, on The One Upbeat, with your host, Eric Silver.
2: Sadly, we've come to the end of this episode of The One Upbeat, paying tribute to the music and career of Grant Kirkhope. And to end the show, we're going to highlight one of the most surprising games of recent years. There were rumors persisting throughout early 2017 about a strange game teaming up Mario and the Rabbids from the Rayman spin-off, Rayman's Raving Rabbids. Nobody really believed that this could be real at first, but rumors just kept on going. Just before E3 2017, Grant Kirkhope started teasing a new project he was working on. Your genius host put two and two together pretty quickly, and wouldn't you know, E3 rolls around, and the most unlikely crossover ever was revealed. A turn-based strategy crossover between Mario characters and rabbits. On top of that, it looked beautiful, looked actually fun, and had music by Grant Kirkhope. All those rumours had people super negative on the game, acting like Nintendo lost their way completely, but were quickly shut up after having seen the gameplay footage.
0: Mario Rabbit's Kingdom Battle was a bit of a strange one at the start. Um, I got a, a kind of a vague email from Jean uh, Marco Zana, who's the producer at Ubisoft Milan. And um, it was on LinkedIn. It just said to me, uh, Dear Mr. Kirkhope, uh, we have a game you think you'd be a good fit for. You know, uh, are you interested kind of thing? And that was it. I said, of course I'm interested. You know, let me know all about it. So it took a little while to sign the NDA because it always takes a bit of time. And then I got an email. It was called uh, Rabbids Kingdom Battle. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Because, you know, I like the Rabbids because my kids watch the cartoons and I think they're really crazy. And I think in some respects they kind of, they are the original minions, really. They're just a bit stupid and they don't understand stuff and they're crazy and daft. And we loved the cartoons. We thought they were funny. Um, so I thought, oh, this would be cool, you know. Um, so... Um, they wanted to fly me out to meet me, um, kind of thing. So it was arranged that um the guys m- from Milan would would fly to Paris, Ubisoft Paris, and I'd fly there and meet there. So it must have been April, I don't know, 2014, 15, something like that. Um uh, so I got, you know, flown out there, very fancy. Um got to the Ubisoft Studio there, and um I was kind of escorted through the back of the studio through some security doors, through more security doors and into this bit at the back that was, like, you know, private... I you know, had to get a special key to get in. I was a bit thinking, this is a bit weird for a, for a rabbits game. Like, you know, it's, like... Nothing secret about the Rabbids, right? Anyway, so got into the final back bit and then escorted to a side room off the, at the side of the, the main development space where uh, Davide Soliani and... Uh, a, it's, 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 it looks like Romain, but I think it's pronounced Roma. Roma Brio, the audio director, was there. And... Um, you know, sat down to talk about the the music for the game. Uh, so uh, Davide said, well, I should show you the game, should I? So he turned the TV on and uh, Mario was uh, on there on the screen. And I just kind of thought, you know, probably they'd been playing uh, Mario, uh, you know, before I got there because we were bored. And then um, Davide started to move Mario around. I, was, I was said, uh, you know, what's this? He said, well, it's a Mario game. No one told you? I was like, no. So at that point, you know, all the color drained from my face. And I started to have a panic attack, probably, thinking, how on earth am I going to write music for a Mario game? Because, you know, Koji Kondo is a legend, and I'm not. And how am I going to do that without everybody hating me? Without my kids never speaking to me ever again? Not that they do speak to me in the first place, mind you. (coughs) (laughs) So, I remember Davide and Ramar said to me, we thought, you sat there sort of quite quiet for the first hour, we really thought you didn't like the game. It's just because I was in such panic, (laughs) thinking, how am I going to do this? I think it was equal parts sort of, Panic equal parts excitement. You know, who would... For God's sake, if you told me in 1995 when I started to uh, work on a Mario game, I would never have believed it. And that is absolutely ridiculous. Like, how on earth that would that even come to pass? Um, So, you know, we spent, I guess, I guess, two and a half years working on that game together. Uh, and, you know, I, I talked to Davide and Ramar, uh, you know, every day. I mean, I wrote music every day for that game for two and a half years, easily. it was two and a half hours of music. Um... And we definitely talked every every day. It was like a, you know, full on thing. Um, you know, and when I was doing the cinematic sequence and someone often see me doing it, you kind of go, you know, Dad, that's Mario you're on that screen right there. And you get those moments where you kind of go, God, he's right. It is Mario. Um, and so you know, in, during that two and a half years, towards the end of it, we get to the, to the kind of E3 unveiling and quite a lot of the game got leaked or like certainly screenshots and everyone knew it was Mario Rabbids and everyone was going this is a this sounds like a stupid idea it's going to be awful and you know from the outside when you hear Mario Rabbids you think God, that sounds like a daft idea but not it's not till you see it that you kind of and play it you kind of go oh my god it's the it's the best idea ever so that was you know it it was a bit rough getting towards E3 when people were getting it was getting you know quite a panning in the press people going this is going to be dreadful but when, when the three came around and we did the big unveiling at the theater in, 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 the Orphan Theater in LA, and I was sat next to Davide, you know, one, you know, one space down from Davide because he saved me a seat. And Mr. Mimote came on, and, you know, I, even though I knew he was going to be there, I still jumped out of my skin when he, when he got on stage, you know, and he called out Davide and said, you know, and Davide started to cry. And, you know, like it really, it meant such a lot to us all to have, to get to that point and everyone go, God, this is great. We can't, but this is, this is really good because no one could believe it, you know. So I think we had a massive outpouring of um, emotion. And just after the, the theatre show, me and Davide went across the street and sat in this kind of sandwich bar. And I just had a sandwich and a, drink and a cup of coffee each and just sat there looking at each other in silence, you know, like, God, did that, did that just happen? You know, like, a bit like that, sort of in shock. Uh, and that game's just gone from strength to strength that you're still selling very well now. It's, it's, it's crazy how it's just... It's not really, if ever, it's sort of accelerated in it sales towards the end, towards, you know, towards this time. Um, it's just mad. So that was amazing.
2: The score is a glorious return to form for Grant Kirkhope. That wacky, whimsical style that everyone knows and loves about him is in full display here, to complement the insane concept. There's great hectic music, epic battle music, and wonderful rearrangements of classic Mario tunes. Make sure you tune in for that great opera also. You heard that correctly.
0: So I had to try and find yet again, find some kind of sound that would work for rabbits and Mario. So I had to kind of have a bit of Mario, a bit of crazy rabbit, and a bit of me stick it together and and come up with a sound. And that's what I think I, tra- I did, um, at least in my head. Um, you know, cause I, again, it, it didn't need to be. It didn't. It didn't need to be like Nintendo would have done. Nintendo said to Davide, "You can take Mario and you can break him, do things that we can't do." So, so equally, the music wanted to make sure that I did things that perhaps you wouldn't hear in Nintendo music, while still being respectful, because, you know, Koji Kondo is a legend. <laughs> yeah. um, so a couple of occasions that we, you know, I had to rearrange Koji Kondo stuff. So on the Peach's Castle theme, um, David said, we'd love to use the Mario, the, the Mario Castle theme from Mario 64, which is my favorite Mario game, because, you know, that was my time at Rare. So I thought, oh, God, this is going to be, you know, yet again, super scary, but fa- what a fantastic chance to get to, you know, to play with Koji Kondo's, you know, fantastic arrangement. Um, and so I was trying to think, how am I going to do it? So I thought the best thing to do is to kind of split the mar- his theme up into little bits and, and kind of have a bit of him, a bit of me, a bit of him, a bit of me, you know, kind of do it like that. Um, you know, I'm thinking at some point, he's going to have to hear this and go, all right, it's all right, Grant, all right, it's rubbish, do it again, you know. <laughs> like that. So, um you know, when I finally sent it across and Ubisoft sent it over, they liked it. And it was, you know, um, you know that was super flattering that, that the Nintendo sound team would think that I'd done a decent job. You know, that was really flattering. And I guess that was part of the reason that I think I went on to get the Super Smash Brothers thing because I think they felt I could do, you know, doing a rearrangement of music, I, I could do that, you know. And then so I could do an arrangement of my own piece like Sparrow Mountain for the Smash Brothers thing. Um but also I had to do um some of the little game over and you know sort of win lose ditties with orchestra. So I had to take Goji Kondo's, you know, kind of um, you know, super Super Nintendo uh the SNES stuff and, you know, make it into orchestra stuff. So, you know, which was easy enough. Um I thought it was. Um so I think I'd done the game over ditty, which is like da 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 something like that. Um and i would got some of the harmonies mixed up. Not wrong notes, just in the wrong register, I think. Because I had to sort of work it out by ear. Um, and I got a little email from Nintendo saying, sort of, you know, very polite, dear Mr. up, we we, we love your rendition of whatever it was, the Game Over theme, but could you just please just look at the harmony? And they sent me a little bit of sheet music um, to show me the, how it went. And I was just thinking, that was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I just got a bit of sheet music from Nintendo, <laughs> from Nintendo like, telling me how the Game Over... And that was just amazing to me. Like that's one of those kind of pinch yourself things like this really happening, you know? So, um, that was mega special. Um, and that doing that whole game was special. I got to, you know, play with Mario and the, and the Mario characters in that universe with the rabbits and get a bit of myself in there, uh, you know, and just back to Prague again to record it. Well, we did about 45, 50 minutes of music for that uh, with Prague. The rest was like my MIDI stuff here. Um, but you know, I, looking, when I look back at my career, I'm definitely going to go my god, I got to write write music for Mario I'm never going to forget that, that was just incredible
2: Grant Kirkhope would go on to work on other indie games including working closely with Platonic Games on Ukulele, which is the spiritual successor to both Banjo-Kazooie and Donkey Kong Country, and even became the first western arranger in the Super Smash Bros. series for his rearrangement of Spiral Mountain to go along with the Banjo-Kazooie DLC for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate For a guy prominently known for a 22 year old game he definitely stays relevant today which is much more than most game composers can say for themselves this is music from Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle music composed by Grant Kirkhope performed by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra I'd like to take this moment to say thank you so much to Grant Kirkhope for his help on this episode and his input it's been such a joy and a pleasure and an honor of course getting to include him for me as, you know, one of the biggest fans of his work around and I will make that claim because it's my show and I can do it. It's such a special opportunity. I hope that this episode did some justice to his work. Please enjoy the music. <laughs>
1: since Donkey Kong smithering down every pipe despite his plum-shaped body died Who's gonna run in fear while screaming Mamma Mia Who leaves me grey and grim Oh, what does Peach see in him? In my heart! It's time I watch Mario Kart, You're first and doing so well, but yeah, come this high <laughs> And now you and your hobby friend Have finally met your end. Just let me catch my breath, then I'll I see <laughs> torment I send you to retirement you saw Thank you for listening to Cinematic Sound Radio. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at SinSound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate and review the show. It really helps us rise through the ranks and helps potential new listeners find the show. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at CinematicSound.net.
3: party's begun just taste our candy we'll show you'll
0: agree saying piñatas are
3: the one for me saying piñatas are the one for me okay
0: thank you